I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, this morning to the passage which we read from the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John, the beloved disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, was an exile in the Isle of Patmos. He was an outcast from society because of his testimony for the Word of God, and for Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. And from this rocky little island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea, John was instructed to write this prophecy, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And why the translators of the King James Version ever decided to call it the revelation of St. John the Divine, I'll never know, because the first verse of the epistle tells us very clearly that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. However, John is very careful to tell us the source of this sublime revelation. He tells us the author of the book. It is from the triune God himself. It is from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, a reference to the Father. It is also from the seven spirits which are before his throne, a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in the plenitude of his fullness, here described as the seven spirits. And then finally, it is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. And so as John refers to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, he cannot help but call to remembrance of the Lord's threefold ministry and office as prophet, the faithful witness, priest, the first begotten from the dead, and king the prince of the ruler of the world. But as John meditated on the person and work of his Lord, and as he saw him in his beauty and holiness and love, he was compelled, it seemed, by the Spirit of God to offer this glorious doxology of praise, this peon of praise to the Son of God. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God 
and our Father. Here we see what I have chosen to call the song of the redeemed. The song of the redeemed. And these three great things that John ascribes to Jesus Christ in this peon of praise are the three great things of our salvation. We have, first of all, the love of Jesus for the redeemed. Secondly, the cleansing of Jesus for the redeemed. And then the handiwork of Jesus within and upon the redeemed. Or, if you prefer an alliteration, the cause, the consequence, and the, the completion and the consequence of our redemption. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. First, then, we see here in this marvelous text the love of Jesus for the redeemed. Unto him that loved us. Is not that a marvelous expression? Is that not a tremendous expression when you stop to think of it? Unto him that loved us. We can understand how God could have had compassion upon us. We can understand perhaps how the great God, the eternal God of the universe, could have pitied us who are poor worms and insects crawling around on this earth. But how fantastic that he should love us. Why do I say that? Why is it unusual that we should think that God Almighty, who we know is love, should love human beings such as you and I this morning? Well, if you'll notice it very carefully, it's unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. It's unto him that loved us. The loving comes before the washing. God loved you and me, beloved, before we were washed and cleansed. God loved us in our unloveliness. We were foul and unclean. We were worms, and no man, as the psalmist tells us. And yet, God loved us in that condition. You say, oh, pastor, I'm not so bad. I'm a respectable citizen. I pay my debts and my taxes. I take good care of my wife and my children. I'm not so bad, pastor. Listen to me, beloved. The Word of God says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The Word of God tells us that we are by nature the children of wrath, the children of the devil, even as others. We have illustrations of the human heart before our eyes in our newspapers and our news reports every day. If you'll recall, it was just almost a year ago now that this man in Chicago walked into this bedroom, into this rooming house where these young nurses were staying, and one by one marched them out, eight of them, and murdered them fiendishly in cold blood. And one rolled under the bed and escaped to tell us the story. But how can a man come into a place and take a woman 
and stab her and strangle her and kill her in cold blood without fleeing. But no, cold-bloodedly walking right back and getting another and taking her into the other room and doing the same time. Not once, not twice, not three times, eight times. Murder is in the heart of man without Christ. A few months ago, this young man down in the state of Texas, this fine, upstanding veteran of the Korean War, a young man who had the distinction of being the youngest young man to ever earn the Eagle Scout Award in the United States of America, this young man who was faithful in a so-called evangelical Sunday school all through his youth and teens, this young man who came from a Christian home and family could go up on that tower at the University of Texas and take these weapons with him and just uh, scatter the shots at the people below. And before he was finished, I think some 14 or 15 people were murdered innocently. No knowledge of their assailant. For no reason, it would seem, murder in the heart of man. You say, oh, pastor, well, I've never murdered anyone. I've never done that. Haven't you? How many of you in this assembly this morning are bearing grudges and grievances and bitterness in your heart against another in this church, another who is a Christian? How many of you have those evil thoughts in your heart concerning those with whom you work? Jesus Christ said, if you hate a man in your heart, beloved, you've committed murder. Jesus Christ said, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Oh, beloved, the Word of God makes it so clear to you and to me this morning that we, in our unclean state, are murderers, we are adulterers, we are liars, we are wicked. We are unclean. We are foul. And so I say to you, it's an amazing thing that God would turn to you and to me and say, unto him that loved us. He loved us, beloved. In our state of sin and misery and death and wickedness, I say it's astounding that God should love us in such a state. Amazing that God should love us unclean, unholy. But actually, beloved, our case is worse than that. Our, our case is actually worse than that because according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, we are dead in trespasses and in sin. Those that are without Jesus Christ. Those who are unclean and foul and unwashed in the blood of Jesus Christ are actually spiritually dead in trespasses and in sin. We are lifeless, malodorous. 
you don't know what that two-bit word means, it's just a bad stink. There's a bad stink about you and me, beloved, in our heart. We're dead. Now let me ask you a question. Can you conceive this morning of loving a dead corpse? Can you conceive this morning of walking into the funeral parlor down yonder and embracing that dead corpse that is lying there? And shower your affection and your love and your kisses upon that dead body? Oh, perhaps, if that dead body were your husband. Perhaps, if that dead body were your wife or child or mother or father. Perhaps, if that dead body were someone lovely to you and beloved of your heart. Perhaps, yes. And we see it. We see the affection and the love that is poured out from bereaved souls as they must bid adieu to departed loved ones and as they lean over into that casket and they kiss those lifeless lips and hold that cold hand. And this is proper. There's nothing wrong with that because that person that body there, although the soul is, is departed, yet was the body through which our loved one manifested himself to us. And so we can conceive, perhaps, of that. But listen, that's not the case with God and the unbeliever. The Word of God tells us that we were not the friends or the beloved of God God is angry with the wicked every day. God hates the wicked, the Word of God tells us. And actually in the 5th chapter of the book of Romans, the 10th verse, we read that we were enemies of God. Now I say to you, dear friend, can you conceive of yourself going down to that funeral parlor and embracing that body, that body of an enemy? Let's say that this morning that body happens to be Nikita Khrushchev. This man who has the blood of millions upon his hands. I think that perhaps we're safe in saying this morning that he is an enemy of humanity. He's an enemy of everyone that's in this assembly. Or if you're not pleased with the Khrushchev because he's still living, let's make it Lenin. Lenin's body is over there in Red Square. It's preserved for you. Let's go over to Red Square and let's walk up to Lenin's body and let's embrace it. Let's shower our affection upon it. Let's kiss it and stroke it tenderly. Oh, you say, Pastor, don't be so morbid. Oh, Pastor, don't be so unreasonable. Listen, dear friend, this morning I'm simply trying to convey to you the fact that this is our condition before God without Jesus Christ. That without Jesus Christ in our heart, never having received the gift of everlasting life, never having been acted upon by the Spirit of God, we are dead. We are an enemy of God. And yet it is in that state of deadness, 
It is in that state of enmity that God loved us if we're his people. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins when his own blood. Beloved, the love of God in behalf of his people is manifested and expressed in this way before the cleansing, before the washing. God's love is not like the familiar theme of the poor girl that is made over into something beautiful and lovely. Uh, The theme of Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, and many other of these uh, novels and plays and books and so forth. You know how the story goes. Here's the older man, perhaps, uh, with a lot of wealth, and he happens to uh, meet a young girl, and for some reason he's... uh, Uh, moved with compassion upon her or pity because of her rags and because of her uh, uncouthness. And so he uh, sees that she has a good education. He sends her away to a a finishing school, you know, and and sees that she has the best of clothing and and she is taught how to fix her hair and, and all these other things, you know, that the ladies seem to have to go through to make themselves presentable in the morning. And, uh, and the young lady learns all of that. And five or six years later, why, she's grown up, and the, uh, the man happens to see her again, and here she is, a lovely lady. Beautiful. Magnificent. And now that feeling that was once compassion somehow changes. And somehow this man begins to uh, think of this girl in a different way. And then you know the story how it blossoms into love. And they marry and they live ever hap- happily ever after, I suppose. I never could stomach any of those stories to finish them. But that's not God's love for us. That's not the way God loves you and me. Puts his spirit within us, sanctifies us makes us holy and clean and pure, and then decides to love us. No, dear friend, it's unto him that loved us. He loves us while we're still unclean, while we're foul and unclean. What a remarkable thing is God's love. And not only that, but God chooses to call us as individuals. He, He loves us as individuals and calls us by our own name. Now, in John's day, the individual counted for nothing. The individual was nothing in John's day. All kings counted. The state counted for something. Caesar counted. But not John. Not the millions of the oppressed in the Roman Empire. They were nothing but chattel and mere property to be used as pawns in the hands of the rulers of the day. The individual counted for nothing in John's day. And how like John's day is our day today. How many of the millions behind the Iron Curtain of Russia? How many of the millions behind the bamboo curtain of communist China count for anything? No, beloved, it's the masses. The individual counts for nothing. And now we're moving in our own land to the welfare state 
where more and more the individual means less and less. It's the mass, it's the state, it's society. And this is the theme of this new confession. This is the theme and this is the underlying philosophy that brings out this theme of the new confession of the United Presbyterian Church. That it's no longer God interested in individuals such as you and I this morning, but it's the masses, it's social justice, it's social revolution. But oh, how amazing when we think of the love of God for us as individuals, as we think of it in the terms of the vastness and the age of the creation, for instance, as David did in that beautiful eighth psalm when he said, When I consider thy heaven." the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars that thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Oh, yet, dear friend, the Lord Jesus Christ loves us as individuals and he calls us by our name he calleth his own sheep by name we read in John 10 verse 3 however many in this world however vast the creations beyond us beloved and however complicated the ramifications of life may become yet he loves us unto him that loved us I'd have you note before we move on one other thing about this love of God that we see here if you have a marginal reference Bible, you'll notice that the reference gives it loveth. Unto him that loveth us. Unto him that is loving us. Actually in the Greek, here the, verse, the, the word translated, the verb translated in the past tense, love, is actually present, which has the meaning in Greek of a continuous action. It's not that God loved us way back there in the past sometime, but it's that God loved us in the past, but he's loving us now, and he continues to love us on into the future. Before the foundation of the world, God loved us. According as he hath chosen us in Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God loved us. In the day of his flesh, Jesus Christ loved us. In the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, we read, as our Lord Jesus was gathered with his disciples there in the upper room, before he was betrayed, in that first verse it says, Jesus, knowing that his hour was now come, that he must uh, accomplish redemption on the cross, he says, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. Yes, dear friend, the love of God began in the past. In the days of his flesh, it was manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross as he hung there. The love of God was manifested for you and me. Greater love hath no man than this that he laid down his life for his friend in the day of his resurrection, in the day of his ascension. Oh, dear friend, the love of God continues. It's abiding, it's past, present, and it's future unto him that is loving us. 
and washing us, washed us from our sins, from his own blood. Who can comprehend the love of God? Who can understand, who can enter into the height and the depth of the love of God in Jesus Christ as he's manifested it to us? How glorious is that peon of Paul in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans where he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Unto him that is loving us, the love of Jesus for the redeemed. But after John considers and thinks of the love of Jesus, he then moves on to this second thought, the cleansing, the cleansing of Jesus for the redeemed. Love was the motive of our salvation. What was the act? You know, we live in a world of cause and effect. And where there's a cause, there must be an effect. Now, love was the cause. What was the effect of this great love of Jesus Christ for the redeemed? A heart love, beloved, always results in a direct action. Did you know that? Here's a boy. He's going to high school, perhaps, junior high now. And all of a sudden he gets up in the morning and he starts combing his hair. He puts on a clean shirt and nice trousers to go to school. And you mothers are amazed. And, well, what happened to Johnny? Huh. I've been trying to get him to comb his hair and brush his teeth before he'd go to school for, for years and, and he would never do it. Now all of a sudden he's doing it on his own. Why is that? What's happened to him? Huh? Well, all the women know. All the women are smiling. Some of you men, I guess, have forgotten. You can't remember. Yeah, when, so, when, when, when love takes place in the heart, you know, something happens. Love always develops into an action. But listen, especially you young people, you boys and you girls, are you listening? Let me tell you something this morning. Love always results in a right action. Love results in a proper action. And don't any of you young girls this morning let a young fellow tell you he loves you and because he loves you so much, he wants you to do something that you know to be wrong. That's not love. That's not love. That's lust. That's anything but love. And you young men, if you love a girl, you treat her with respect. You treat her with dignity. 
and with holiness. Because genuine love never asks the beloved to do something that is wrong and contrary to the will of God. Love results in right action. What did the love of Jesus produce, dear friend? What did the love of Jesus Christ produce for you and me? What did the love of Jesus Christ for the elect lead to? Oh, you know the answer. Dear friend, the love of Jesus for you and me led him right to the hill of Calvary. It led him right to the cross of Golgotha. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. And there on Calvary's cross, Jesus Christ poured out his life's blood for you and for me. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Beloved, the love of Jesus produced this blood shedding on Calvary's cross. The love of Jesus for the redeemed meant that he must go to that cross and allow wicked men to nail his hands and his feet there and to thrust his side through with that spear that the blood might flow, that you and I might be washed and cleansed from our sin in his blood. Now we have noted that the verb in the Greek for love is present. He loved us. But this verb for washed is just the opposite. It denotes an entirely different action. It is past completed action. It's unto him who is loving us in the past and in the present and in the future and washed us in one great mighty atoning act. Jesus Christ washed us from our sins. We do not work for cleansing. We do not do penance for cleansing. We do not reform our lives for cleansing. We do not join the church and partake of the communion and receive baptism either, even for cleansing, dear friend. No. None of that will avail for cleansing. We simply must receive cleansing as the free gift of God. By faith, we receive it from the gracious hands of our Savior. Oh, how illustrative of this truth is that glorious hymn that we often sing, and how my heart is always stirred as I think of it, Augustus Top Ladies, Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling.
Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul, I to Thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Dear friends, He gives this cleansing. He gives this washing to every sinner who in confession of his sin and repentance turns from them and asks Him sincerely for this cleansing. But there's nothing of this in this new confession. There's nothing of the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for lost sinners, for you and me, dear friend. There's nothing that even mentions the cleansing of Jesus for sin. And that's the blasphemy of it. That's the awfulness of it. That's the terribleness of it. This blessed act of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross is completely demoted and left out and thrown on the ash heap. And they've taken the blessed person and the work of our Lord Jesus and they've relegated it somehow to the area of theory or of mystery that nobody can understand. Dear friend, I can understand this because the Spirit of God has given me that faith. Can you understand it this morning? Do you know what it means to have the love of God showered upon you and to have your heart and your soul cleansed and washed from sin? Some people wonder why Dr. McIntyre and others of us get so stirred up about something like the New Confession or the apostasy of the Presbyterian Church and others. This is the answer, dear friend. This is the answer. The Word of God says, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, a common thing, and hath done despot to the Spirit of grace. Oh, do you not see, dear friend, when you leave out the blood of Jesus Christ, you leave it all out. There is no salvation. There is no cleansing from sin. Yes, to the one who will come to God and in repentance of sin and in simple faith look up, casting himself upon the mercy of God, there's cleansing, there's forgiveness. But to the proud, to the haughty, to the boaster, to the unrepentant, to the unbeliever, to those who desire to cherish and cling to their sin, to their little secret sin and keep it in their heart, beloved, to those who will continue to put the Son of God to an open shame and trod Him underfoot, dear friend, there's no cleansing. And consequently, there's no love either. There's nothing but according to the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. What of you, my friend, this morning? It's unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. Are you numbered among the people of God? Are you one of the us this morning? 
Are you one of those for whom Christ died this morning? Oh, may the Spirit of God speak to your heart and give you that faith to put your trust in Him as Lord and as Savior. Unto Him that is loving us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Does not the power of this truth awaken you as it did in John, this doxology of praise to the one who is loving you and washed you from your sins? Christian, are you downcast this morning? Are you discouraged? Are you disappointed? Are you sorrowing? Oh, then look. Look back to that sacred scene of bloodshedding where Jesus Christ poured out his blood on Calvary's cross. And let your soul and your heart be cleansed anew by that precious blood. The blood of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. May God help us to live in the power of this renewed life through the blood of Jesus Christ. May God help us to return that love, to worship the Son of God, and live for Him who died for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the blood of Jesus Christ and for Thy love bestowed upon us through Him. And Lord, we'd ask that Thou wilt enable us by Thy grace each and every one to put our faith in that Son of God that we might live for him daily that we might be good witnesses of his grace and oh Father if there have come in any to this service or who have listened on the radio who have never opened their heart to receive the free gift of thy grace oh wilt thou give to them that spirit of repentance and faith to believe. And Lord, for those dear Presbyterians who love Thee and are grieved in heart at what is being done through this new confession, Lord, wilt Thou speak to them? Wilt Thou cause them to turn away from this church which has turned away from the Son of God and Thy Word? And wilt Thou cause them, our Father, to come out in great multitudes, a large company, and take their stand with the Bible-believing remnants of these days. Speak to our hearts and have us do each one what thou wouldst have us do. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. Let us close the service as we sing just one stanza of hymn number 391. 391, one stanza only. <clears throat>
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest upon and abide with, with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.